Welcome back to Advis After Hours, a podcast focused on the intersection of innovation, finance, and community. Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Ashley Van, founder of the Victory Cup Initiative. The Victory Cup is a local nonprofit that hosts a competition annually to help local nonprofits amplify their storytelling abilities to ultimately raise more funds and build community. So you were originally from Winter Park, correct? Born and raised in Winter Park. I was born at Winter Park Hospital 50 years ago. And I live a quarter of a mile from the house I grew up in. My parents still live there. And both my sisters, one lives a quarter of a mile away from me in one direction. The other one lives a quarter of a mile away from me in the other direction. My brother lived in Quail Hollow. He was a teacher at Lake okay. Island. He passed away 10 years ago. And then my oldest brother is an addiction counselor in Atlanta. How often have you found people around town that are natives to Winter Park. And I feel like it's fairly rare at this point. It is rare. It is rare. And then I'll I'll meet someone and they'll be multi-generational, which leads me to believe that like their parents and their grandparents are all from Winter Park. And then I get a little jealous. <laughs> <laughs> is it like, yeah, I figure there's like a little tiny network of you all who are who are natives to here. Went to school at Winter Park. Was that what you said? Well, I went to Winter Park High and then I went to the University of Florida. Okay, go Gators. And then I go Gators and um, came back, lived here for two years worked at the Barnett Bank Management Training Program yep. with Tom Yoakum and uh, did that for two years and then knew that I wanted to be a wealth planner. I knew okay. that I wanted to be a stockbroker. So that was back in the 90s, even though I knew I would have to cold call. But because I'm the youngest of five, I didn't want to cold call on my parents' friends. Right, right. And so I decided to move to Atlanta and do it there. So uh, packed up, moved to Atlanta, interviewed with all the firms got jobs. And then my dad said, if you're going to do this, go with the best firm. So I ended up at Merrill Lynch, which I do believe is an incredible wealth planning firm. And I spent six years there, went through their PDP program and built my business on cold calling. Hi, this is Ashley Van Mitchell. Um, Have you thought about wealth planning? I mean, the whole thing like, no, do you have children? Have you thought about college? Did you know it's going to cost you $250,000? To wow. send your child to college. <laughs> oh my gosh, you live in the Pines. I'm going to be on Lake Mont in Aloma at 4.30 on Thursday. Can I stop by and drop off some information? I mean, I did that for the first two years. What we brought, I brought in $18 million. Wow, calling. that's incredible. But, but driving all over, over Atlanta. Yeah. And Dalton, Dalton, I, I hit the jackpot. Dalton, I got four or five good families there. But this was before cell phones. Yep. This is before you had... I remember one of my cube mates, Arnold Winters, he had MapQuest on his computer. I was gonna say, even before that. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. And so I would say, Arnie, I'm getting ready to go somewhere. Do you have time to print me the directions? Yeah. And if not, you had to actually call the person that you really barely knew and get directions from them over the phone. Amazing. And then I would just show up and talk. And we always, I had a mentor, Rod Westmoreland. And so luckily he, told me because I didn't know anything about investments and mutual funds. But so I sold financial plans. Mm. And back then, I think they were called foundations at Merrill Lynch, $250. Mm. So I literally would just go in and sell the plan. Wow. And that's how I got Just cold the calling book. over the phone. Cold calling over the phone, going to see people I didn't know and talking about financial planning. Do you think your love and focus on storytelling was driven at all by that part of your career in wealth management? Because 
storytelling to a degree in education is is key when you're dealing with clients or prospects. Did that have any influence on kind of what you're doing now and your focus there? I think what I learned at Merrill Lynch about storytelling is that a good story is a good story. And you might hear a story once or twice from me and then get tired of it. But then if I share the same story with Jeff, it's right. new to him. Right. And if I share the same story with five other people, it's new to them. And I can tuck that story away and a couple years later I can bring that story out and it's still a great story. And later in my career at Merrill Lynch, I ended up joining a team, one of the, the top teams. And no matter who the team met with, we told the same story. And when we would go to the headquarters for the corporate, tra- you know, for the sales training, the top advisors always had their story that they told. Mm-hmm. So to your point, it did it did train me the power of storytelling and what it can do to someone. Mm-hmm. And a right. good story is right. a good story. Well, because there there are those individuals who are just wildly charismatic, but the ones you're drawn to are able to tell stories and explain things in a very simple manner. I think. I sometimes get caught up and if I'm explaining things and maybe being too detailed and that tells me that I need to figure out and get a little more in depth on my understanding of it so I can explain it in an easier way. So I definitely see the power of storytelling, especially in, in dealing with relatively complex topics for individuals who don't see it every day. At what point in the wealth management career did you did you shift out of it? Luckily, Merrill Lynch, we our office was across the street from the Buckhead Ritz Carlton. And so there were a lot of events there. And I was asked to host the women's conference and that was such an honor. And we had this incredible speaker, Jeffrey Rosenzweig, who was the chief economics professor for Emory University. Mm. And after the conference, he said, have you contemplated getting your MBA? I would love for you to come to Emory. Very cool. I'm a sociology major from the University <laughs> of Florida. I can't even tell you what my grades were. And <laughs> I'm I, the same way. I was journalism <laughs> at UF. I don't want to talk about my grades. No. And got an MBA in, in this business of all things. Yeah. And so I thought, I knew I wanted to get my MBA one day, but I was thinking of like Georgia State or right something, just some, not a private. Right. I mean, at mm-hmm. the time, Emory was number 18. Yeah. And Dr. Rosenzweig said, so well, come see me on campus and two weeks later, I went to go see him and he introduced me to everybody in the business school and I ended up getting in. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, we're, my, my parents were still shocked. <laughs> we're like, but it was an incredible experience. And so once you do that, then you kind of like think about, well, do I want to do something else? I think the role of a wealth planner is critical, critical for families and couples, you know, having... um security, long-term security. And I think it's great. It's also a very high pressure role and it's very stressful. And I hadn't had children at the time. And so then I was getting married. I wanted to have children. So my life was changing Mm -hmm. and my faith was getting stronger and stronger. And so I met Wells Real Estate Funds. Mm -hmm. And then I just really, really wanted to go work there. And so because of Merrill Lynch and because of my time as a wealth planner there, I was able to get a position with Wells. And Merrill Lynch has literally been a launch pad for every single solitary mm. professional opportunity in my life. It was the most difficult six years of my life. Mm-hmm. And everything that I've gotten professionally, I can I can connect it back to Merrill. Wow. I'm curious about your experience in those first six years. I know we're jumping around, but it's grueling when you're a younger individual just out of college trying to get business because a lot of folks 
when they're entrusting their money or looking for older individuals who have been in the industry for a while. How'd you navigate that? And, and what were some of the difficulties and how'd you overcome it? I think you have to have professional mentors because you work so hard to get the client. You work, you make the cold call, you go to see them, you build the portfolio, you sell the portfolio, you hope they say yes, they say yes. Next thing you know, they've transferred over a couple million dollars under your management. Uh-huh, right. And then when things happen, they call you. I had a client and they had both just retired. He had a million dollars in Southern Company stock, which has a great dividend. I don't know where it is now. She had a million dollars of Lucent technology. Within six months, her stock had dropped to nothing. Where And his stock had stayed steady and true. It was that utility stock with that high dividend. Mm-hmm. Right. These are phrases I haven't visited in a long <laughs> yeah, time. Sorry if that's so I might be, I might be saying them incorrectly. <laughs> no, you're, you're but perfect. I remember think, them asking me why. I mean, I was a 25-year-old right. kid. I didn't know why, but Rod, my mentor, knew why. And the other senior brokers knew why. So I was able to bring them in. And then at the end of my career at Merrill, I started doing something really smart. I started bringing the compliance officer into new meetings, Charlie McDonald, because he was such a class act and he was so, um, he was like your grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was a great way to counterbalance my age and experience with new prospects. That's smart. I mean, that's something we look, we run into as well. I mean, we're, younger guys in the industry and wealthy individuals are typically farther in their careers and they're looking for someone older. And I think bringing in seasoned professionals is one thing that we've done as well. And not that this is a, we're going to sales for us, but also, you know, younger advisors in an aging industry, you have longevity in the fact that you're going to be with your clients fully through retirement. Whereas, if you get an advisor who's in their 60s, they might be retiring soon as well. So having continuity, right. I think, has been helpful for us to explain. Like, we are younger advisors, but we'll be there for the duration of it. And so um, I appreciate the sentiment. It's definitely not an easy job at the front end, <laughs> by well, any means. And I, I think what you're saying, too, stands out across not just what we're talking about in wealth management, but anything is surrounding yourself with wisdom and experience. And I think that's what it sounds like you do currently with Victory Cup, with your board and everyone who's involved. I think it takes that. In anything you do. I mean, I'm never going to be the smartest person in the room, but I work really hard to figure out who that person mm-hmm. is. Right. I think that's the goal, right? You don't want to be. That's mm-hmm. what everyone says. Well, it might be, <laughs> it would be nice during like trivia night or something. <laughs> yeah, fine. We can do it then. Yeah, exactly. So I think Victory Cup is kind of the key part of the conversation today. So what was the genesis of that? When did it start and how did it start? I worked at Merrill, then Wells Real Estate Funds, and then started having children in Atlanta and uh, my parents took all of our, their children on an international cruise in the care and the Mediterranean. And so we decided to move home to Winter Park and I stopped working and I just was volunteering all the time. And, and once you start having a family, you know, things, you, the way you feel about things change. Right. And so I decided I wanted to start working with nonprofit organizations and help them with their fundraising. I grew up in a home with my father, Zed Layson, who is an incredibly important part of my life. He's the finest person you will ever meet. And I still live a quarter of a mile away from him. And he always talked to us about money. 
if we went to Wendy's, we talked about how much the cheeseburger was and how much the frosty cost. It was just very common. And people always say to me, how do you, you know, how do you talk to your children about money? And it's like, just ask them if we're going to go to the 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee, how much did the Slurpee cost? Nobody talks about that anymore. Right. And so I've always felt very comfortable just talking about money. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of played into my role with Merrill Lynch and then just feeling comfortable. I love talking to people about generosity and giving. So it's a culmination of having an incredible earthly father, wanting to honor my heavenly father, and just knowing that the earth is perfect, that God made the earth and there are enough resources to care for all of us, but we've selfishly manipulated that, right? Mm -hmm. And so nonprofit organizations, which are critical to a healthy community, you know, they're working to kind of right the system and make the world a better place. And so my husband and I decided that I wanted, that I would start building a business to consult with nonprofit organizations. So I started taking classes at the Edith Bush Institute out of, um, at the time it was out of the Rollins um, Crummer Graduate School, but now it's it's a freestanding uh, college at Rollins. And I would sit in the classrooms with anywhere between eight to 12 nonprofit leaders. And I would be surrounded by the most humble, courageous, passionate people. And all they wanted to do was love others and care for people. And it wasn't about the money. It's not about the prestige. And every person had their own passion. One gentleman's passionate about veterans with mental health issues. One woman was really passionate about helping mothers who had lost their babies early in their um, mm-hmm. in their child's life. Um, talking to a woman who was crazy about cats in Gainesville. And from the high pressure, you know, career that I'd had at Merrill Lynch and at Wells and other organizations, other companies, I thought the business leaders want to hear these stories and they want to meet these people, but they're just way too busy. They're way too busy building their book of business. They're way too busy having children. They're way too busy taking care of their aging parents or getting a degree at night. But what if? what if we created an opportunity where we create this super exciting lunch? It was going to be a lunch at first where we invite the business community in and we invite 10 nonprofits and we give them each two minutes to pitch who they are and how they're making an impact, but only two minutes because everybody's really busy. It has to be super exciting. I have the shortest attention span on the planet. (laughs) I know it's taken me months to get back to some of our emails. It's because I never read past the first line out of an email. Like I'm a, I'm a one line email person. I think that's how most people are these days. That's how we all are now, right? Seven seconds. And what if we didn't make it a fundraiser? What Mm. if we raise all the money before and we invite the audience to give it away by voting to see who did the best? And at the time, there were lots of venture competitions here in Atlanta, everywhere, but they were all giving away $10,000. And I just knew that wasn't going to get anyone's attention. So in 2016, we gave away $42,000, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but nobody else was doing it back then. Mm -hmm. You were doing consulting and sounds like figuring a lot out. When did the true idea spark? 
for Victory Cup along the way? It literally sparked in the EBI classroom. The EDF, okay. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. Right. And so I pitched it to my dad and he's from Kentucky. And I think originally I said 20 nonprofits. He said, well, I think people <laughs> have short attention spans. What if we did 12? And then so we ended up <laughs> doing 10. It was real sweet. And he's, I would say he's my co-founder. And then I had, I did work at the YMCA for a while. Okay. And I met this really incredible board member there named John Beecham. And I called him and I said, well, can I take you to lunch at Brio? I have this idea I want to run by you. So I ran it by him and he said, I kind of don't know what you're talking about, but I will help you. Uh. So from there, I just started meeting with people, like meeting Mitchell on Wednesday. I probably yeah. would have, if it was 2015, I would have followed up with you today or mm -hmm. next week and said, I have this idea. I'd really love your advice. Can I take you for coffee? Mm -hmm. Again, I'm going to be over here on Pennsylvania. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the first year, I met with 88 people that I did not know. Wow. wow. And I would tell them, what if you're at a luncheon? and 10 nonprofits, and they each stand up, and then we ask you to vote at the end of the lunch, but nobody's asking you for money. Would you buy a ticket to that event? Would you buy a table? And then the person would say, hmm, this is a really neat idea. You should go talk to my friend Jeff Lee. <laughs> and so I'd say, okay. And then I would call Jeff Lee, and then I would go have lunch or coffee with you, and I'd say, would you buy a table? And you would say, that's a really good idea. You should go talk to my friend Sounds Henry. about right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just kept doing that. And then I met this incredible woman named Rebecca York, and she was very kind and she loved the idea. And so she said, you need to create a committee mm -hmm. and you all need to start meeting once a month to put it together. Yep. So all the people that had been the most receiving of the idea, I invited them to breakfast here at another broken egg. Mm -hmm. I was so nervous. Now, meanwhile, I'm a stay at home mom. So I'm like <laughs> taking off my Lululemons to throw on an old suit that's like yeah. <laughs> 10 years old to run out the door to meet with people, come back home, pick up from preschool yeah. and then go to Publix. And then um, I remember I, two ladies I met at Firestones and they wanted to have martinis at like 4.30. And I was like, I gotta go home and make dinner. I can't do this. But And these two women turned out to be such incredible champions of the work. We went to Another Broken Egg six of us had breakfast together. And I said, I'd like, we're gonna go around the room and I would love everyone at the table to share who is your favorite nonprofit and why. Hmm. And so they all did it. And then I said, okay, everyone close your eyes and vote. Who do you think did the best job? Oh, or wow. I think I might've had a sheet of paper. <laughs> and so we ended up picking this one group and I had brought a Starbucks, a $50 Starbucks gift card. And then I gave it to her because she was the winner. And I said, this is what Victory Cup will be. Mm -hmm. That's when the light bulb went off? For them. Everyone? Yeah, for, them. for everyone And else. then they were like, oh, we get it. Right. So then they all started helping me. Yeah. There was this gentleman named Greg Byro who was incredibly helpful. He sold probably five of the tables, mm -hmm. which was just phenomenal mm -hmm. for me. And he was my first board member, my first board chair. Um, I mean, I've got... One day I was at the 7-Eleven and I got a phone call for an anonymous gift of $10,000 wow. that Greg had secured, but I didn't even know the people at the time. And I was, it was, so that's how the journey began. So how many people were at that first 
breakfast? There were 262 people at the breakfast. Wow. <laughs> we did it at the Winter Park Community Center. We, that year I raised, we, because everyone helped, we raised $52,000 and we gave away $42,000. Every nonprofit walked away with at least $1,000 and people left and they said, now we get it. Now we know what you're talking about. And it was one of the most exciting days ever. And then it was all done at 1030. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> and we'd given away $42,000 and we were so excited. And then Victory Cup was born. It's cool to see exactly what you mentioned earlier, where it traces back to your Merrill Lynch days and all the hustling and meeting people for coffee and phone calls clearly contributed to getting Victory Cup off the ground. I mean, I want everything I do to glorify Jesus Christ. And I can look back over my life and I can give you six, eight, nine moments in my life where the Lord was planting mm -hmm. this Victory Cup mm -hmm. seed. Victory um, victory through Jesus Christ cup. It's a competition okay. and then initiative because we want to change the way people think about philanthropy. Right. There is enough for everyone. We mm -hmm. don't have to compete for the mm -hmm. money. I like that. I like the mission. And I think that's clearly so important. And I think it's fascinating too, how you were able, you told all these people, you know, exactly what you just laid out, what the mission is, but the light bulb didn't go off for them until you got them to essentially do it themselves without them even realizing at that first breakfast at another broken egg. And nonprofit work is about being surrounded by volunteers. Right. Like 99 and a half percent of the people that contribute to the Victory Cup ecosystem mm -hmm. are volunteers. Mm -hmm. There's only two half employees. Now I'm full-time as of three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So now I am a full-time employee, but everyone is a volunteer and so the relationship building is critical absolutely so how many people are involved now from a volunteer perspective i was blown away when i walked into the evaluate community evaluator breakfast about how many people there were because i wasn't really entirely sure what to expect you know joey reached out to me we talked about it over a phone call so how many people are, are involved now in the entire process employees and non-employees if you take the board of directors mm -hmm. the community evaluators the people that come to the events to help mm -hmm. I would say 220 is kind of our volunteer core. It's incredible. The community evaluator role is critical because the first year we got like 60 applications. It's a lot. <laughs> Isn't that a lot? It's yeah. because we were able to partner with the Edith Bush Institute. Huh. And so they put it out for us, right? It's all about partnerships. Like we, we've had, it's, it's not me. I mean, I don't know two thirds of the people in that room. Mm -hmm on Wednesday. I don't know two thirds of the people that come to the breakfast. And when we were reviewing the applications and selecting the applications the first time and picking the top 10, I was so incredibly emotional because I knew our work ethic and I knew that we were gonna be creating an incredible PR opportunity for these 10 organizations. Right. So I felt the weight of who was making it. And then when we were down and then we were down to like the final three, I mean, I was extremely emotional because I just feel like I wanted to be true to the Lord's plan. Right. And so after that year, I thought we can't, the four or five of us can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. This has to be a community effort. So we created the community evaluator program. 
And so, which Mitchell is a community evaluator. I am, yes. Hopefully, Jeff Lee will be one Absolutely. before the end of today. But we invite business leaders to, once our application process closes, we invite business leaders to review anywhere between five to six nonprofit applications. But each application is reviewed by at least 10 people. So during October and November, it's really cool because we'll go all over town and people say, I'm so mad at you. I couldn't decide between this <laughs> one or that one. Or they'll say, I really love this one that I, I was reviewing. I hope they make it. Or I just read the most terrible application. I have no <laughs> idea what they do. And it's really exciting. But the nonprofits don't even know. There's this huge right. core that's cheering for them. Right. And this year... We have 165 community evaluators that we will lean very heavily on to review all the applications. So we're not picking them. Central right. Florida picks them. That's the best because community is such a big part of our podcast. And clearly, you're building such a great community. And it's nice. You can kind of pass the the burden on to them to help you with that. But I think you can rest assured knowing it's the community and ultimately what the Lord wants and his will for the who gets chosen and who gets more help. And, and there's always next year as well, right? We learn so much. Right. If Mitchell calls me and says, I'm having a question about this application and I'm reading this, but I'm thinking this, what do you think? I mean, I'll be like, I, I haven't even thought about it like that. So it's important for all of us to know how to be champions for the nonprofit organizations. Nobody's perfect. They're all gonna make mistakes. We've all made bad business decisions. And so I think it's a great tool to teach people how to be a champion for nonprofits. And then also for all of us to be learning from each other. You all are wealth advisors and wealth planners. You know how to look at the financials. You know how to look at the balance sheets. You all can be explaining that right. to me or explaining that to other people. That's It's not in their wheelhouse. I'm curious about a lot of, of what you have going on here with uh, Victory Cup, but one thing in particular is the storytelling such a big aspect and clearly that's a big aspect for business for these um philanthropies and for what you do and that's really at the core of your your coaching them right when they get selected and what's kind of the criteria there and how do you how do you go about that and and what's the process like well again it's a collaborative effort and we early on worked with the Edith Bush Institute and they had a storytelling coach out of Atlanta, Georgia really? that they okay. would fly down and we used him for two years and he was fantastic. But as our program was evolving, um, we knew we needed more diversity in the styles that people are using. And so we interviewed all of these people and one of our board members ended up meeting this woman named Alice Fairfax. She has a long career with Disney, mm -hmm. also with, um, is it Northland Church? Yep. And she's just the story maven and is just kind of really dedicated to helping people write their own stories. And we were able to meet her and told her about what we were trying to do. And I think, honestly, we've learned a tremendous from her amount from her, but I think she's learned a lot from us too because right. we've kind of done this together. And so she, we start by her hosting a workshop all day long for the nonprofits to kind of come up with what is their story. I will say the first year we did Victory Cup, everybody had two minutes. 
the nonprofit leaders complained so much that entire day that finally the CEO of Edith Bush Institute was like, we got to give them another 30 seconds. <laughs> They're not going to make it. And so then we said, okay, you'll get two and a half minutes. And so we worked with Alice and then we did it one year with her. And then we learned that we needed to do more. They needed more coaching. Okay. So then we created a dress rehearsal. And that's when we invited people like Scott Maxwell and other people that we thought were great storytellers mm -hmm. in the community to come in. And it was it would happen about a month before the breakfast, the nonprofit would have to give there and they would get feedback. Well, when COVID hit, a lot of people from Disney, you know, weren't working. And COVID, as you can imagine, really affected all the nonprofits. Well, we had just had our breakfast that year. It was our largest year. We had 529 people. It was such an amazing, beautiful event. And it's hard because my mind goes with so many different stories because <laughs> yeah. it's, everything's such an onion. Yeah. But when we were getting ready to announce the third place winner that year, our third place sponsor announced the wrong name. <laughs> uh. So in the room, 529 people, it's a standing ovation for this nonprofit to come up and get their prize that they did not win. Oh, man. Wow. The person who did win was a paraplegic from Center for Independent Living. So I'm on the stage and I'm like, if I don't address this right now, yeah, this is a PR right. nightmare. Mm -hmm. So I go up to the stage and I said, after everyone sat back down, I apologize. There's been an error that was our fourth place winner. Our third place winner is this. And so he came up, he ended up, and I said, but we will honor the third place prize to our fourth place winner. But more importantly, I felt terrible and I still, I can still feel uncomfortable right now thinking about it for the moment that the woman heard that she wasn't the third place winner because right. she was back in the audience. Right. And, and as a board, our board felt terrible. So the breakfast was over. And it, the funny thing is that was the same year that Steve Harvey announced the wrong pageant winner. Do y'all remember, <laughs> sure remember that? that? Yes. And there was another mix up. So it was just going around that yeah, year. So some of my cronies were like, and victory cup. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> but by the time we had left the breakfast and by the time we had driven to the Alphonse Inn to have our celebratory glass of champagne, I had already had two donors call and say, we're going to cover the prize. It's for incredible. that fourth place wow. organization because you know and so that was really special but i lose track a month later the world shuts down on march 13th and so will we do victory cup well of course we had to do victory cup but what we decided is we were going to try to make it like a tv show like <laughs> the voice and so after each nonprofit would present because we all can't be in a room right. together to vote right. we'll have three judges <laughs> in their chairs turn around and then say <laughs> what they thought of how each of the finalists did. And so when we knew that we wanted to do that, we knew we needed some real help. Well, this is when a lot of the Disney labor force had been let go. Mm -hmm. Well, luckily for us, we got one of the best producers in all of the Disney universe. Her name is Rhonda Ross. She does not live, she lives in between you and I. Okay. And she's like a producer, director, 
incredibly talented woman in the entertainment field. And so she said, oh, I'll come on and help you with this project. And so we partnered with Full Sail and they have a facility called The Gauntlet. Mm -hmm. Are you all familiar with that? I don't know about the gauntlet. Do you I've, know about that? I've probably been there. We well, go to full sale yeah. quite a bit. So okay. It's their huge gaming. Yes. Then yes, oh, I have. Yeah, where yeah. they the have name, the gaming competitions. Gotcha. Well, they gave that to us wow. to film in. That's so cool. But we didn't know how to use any of that stuff. But Rhonda did. did yeah. So Rhonda literally produced the show with Scott Maxwell came and emceed it. Stuart Moore was one of our celebrity judges. And the 10 nonprofits got up, shared their story all on camera. And um, and then we, you know, that was a wrap. Well, nobody knew we did that. We kept it all top secret. Then a week later, we have the breakfast, but we do it at the Orlando Science Center in the IMAX theater. Oh, very Where cool. it's a wall <laughs> yeah. screen and everyone is sitting like two seats away from each other. Very so cool. instead of buying a table, you bought a whole row. Right. And the 10 finalists are sitting in the front row while we're all watching them on screen and then the judges are <laughs> giving their feedback but some of the people in the audience didn't even realize that this i mean really most people didn't realize it had been filmed the week before mm. but everyone in the room got to vote but because it was the virtual year we had watch parties all over the city we had 640 virtual oh, wow voters I was going to say, wow. sound, it sounds like you should do this more often. It sounds <laughs> kind of cool. Wasn't it it's so neat? Awesome. Yeah. It was a, a nightmare because a lot of people are were far away, and so they were having a problem with the voting software. Right. And then we had a party at a really extremely popular restaurant that's very close to here. Well, they lost their Wi-Fi the minute the program started. Oh, so no. they got it back, but it was very stressful for those hosts right. for five or six minutes. And it was really, really exciting. And then they voted and then we announced our winner. That's unbelievable. Winners, because everybody wins. Everybody wins. Everyone votes. Everyone walks away winner. Everyone is a brand new person. There's a moment of transformation that we just invite the Holy Spirit in to be a part of this, to let people listen authentically, be present, be in the room. You're not going to be asked for anything, but we want you to experience generosity your vote is giving away thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And on March 2nd, your vote gave away $786,000 at the Alfondin. Oh my gosh. Wow. Our first place winner won $116,000. Our first place winner last year, her annual operating budget was $40,000. Someone in the audience invited her to apply for a $300,000 grant that she won. She won $90,000 from us. She won a $300,000 grant from, it's actually from an organization where it's it's over three years, but really, really exciting opportunities to right. identify resources. Well, and that, that's part of the, the magic too that I wanted to ask you about. It sounds like is it's not just the, you know, amount, you know, for up for grabs that year. It's the people in the audience that they're meeting as well, that they get to participate and things like that, I'm sure happen. I'm sure there's stories that are happening all the time like that and ones you maybe you don't even know about. There are hundreds of stories that we don't know about and we're doing, we're working harder to, to uncover those stories and to be able to measure those stories for our donors and our supporters. So I'm totally open right. to these financial experts giving <laughs> us some strategic <laughs> feedback. The Ashley Van ultimate goal for each of the nonprofits is that they would walk away with one to two brand new board members. Mm. 
because in the nonprofit community, leadership and communication is everything. And if you have an engaged, active, thoughtful, caring board of directors, then you can accomplish anything. I'm, I'm excited to, to start trying to participate in the future. And I've just seen, we've seen, we've had some great um, philanthropists come on our podcast already and that are great at articulating this, but we've also seen some in the community that it's clear, it's apparent just how important storytelling is. And so what I'm curious what, not to give everything away, but what's the secret sauce with a good story in general, obviously for what y'all do, but what would you say to someone who asked you that? I think the secret sauce is authenticity and telling your own story. Mm -hmm. But I think it also changes and depends. Right. You know, I love reading books and finding a great story and creating a thank you note out of that phenomenal mm. story. There's a story right now that I love that I've, I'm reprinting and sending out as a thank you note. Mm. It, it just... Were you were you at the breakfast on Wednesday? Did you? St I know you had to go. Were you I able was, to stay at I, all? I left like ten minutes early, but I was there for a majority. So okay. I heard. So you I, heard my story. I did at yes. the beginning. Yep. That's just that's not even this well written story. It's a story about my neighbor and just about this relationship that we created and just really kind of how the Lord convicted me about being a better neighbor through getting to know mm. my next door neighbor who was blind, but I didn't even know it. Wow. And I'd lived next to her for. 15 years yeah. and I didn't even know it until Hurricane Ian came through. Wow. And so I spent some time that morning. I got up at about 4 a.m. that morning mm -hmm. and I thought, I think I'm going to use this as my story. I thought it was phenomenal. So I spent some time researching Hurricane Ian. I spent some time really thinking about this wonderful neighbor that I have and how could I honor who she is. A lot of the nonprofits, they get these great stories and we're like, once you're done, you can use it. Your board member can use it. Your volunteer can use it. The sound bites that they come up with. Right. You know, one year we had a 24 paraplegic on the stage and she said, there are hundreds of gyms in this town and there isn't one gym for someone like me. The first year we had someone stand up and say, if you can't read, you can't fill out a job application. Um, I mean, I have so many of my like favorite stories yeah. of what people say mm -hmm. over and over or what would they learn through the Victory Cup. And um, our, our first place winner this year, she was invited to go on to WESH. And I called her and I said, good luck. I'll be praying for you. So, you know, do you know, are you prepared? Do you know what you're going to say? And she's like, I think I'm going to talk about. And she started talking about all these things that she wanted to talk about. And I said, well, use your Victory Cup story. That story that right. we've had seven professionals coach you <laughs> right. for the last four months. We also have a final presentation coach come in, Miss Annetta Wilson, who's incredible. And she tells them what color to wear, where mm. to stand on the stage, what to do with their hands. And she gives them this like incredible boost of confidence. Like you are worthy. You are enough. Don't get nervous. No one knows if you forget anything. I watched that last segment yesterday actually and she was oh. phenomenal she was phenomenal so she did a great job Jan, yeah. yes yeah that was on there now the, the story you told at the breakfast was great and i think it was also a testament to how great kids you raise as well oh thank you, you. i think it was, you said your son was going on walks with her and everything yeah he it really he really because he was in the car with me when i called her i called her to say hey we're going to the grocery store do you need anything and she said, well, and I caught her off guard right. and i said well write my number down and call me back this is a woman who lives one house away from me and she said, well, honey, I'm blind. And so my son had gone from throwing a huge fit, 
because we were going to go to the grocery store to get stuff for the hurricane, to get stuff for Miss Mary Louise, to hearing that and just like a lightning bolt through his heart, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. so he really did a beautiful job of having a relationship with her and, and still does. That's cool. And I, I think what's cool about what you're saying is with all these examples is it's a great one with the West story because everyone thinks a good story is, you know, all these stats, all these other pieces to the puzzle that you think everyone else wants to hear. But what I'm hearing is speaking from the heart, but also literally just saying what the problem you're solving is essentially is, guess what? There's not a gym in town that I can access. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And that's such a profound story in itself. Yeah, I think for all of us, when we're dreaming big and we're trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives or what we want to accomplish or what we want to be known for, it's like, put it out there and just trust the Lord that he's going to put the right people in your path. And people in philanthropy and with fundraising know I believe in my heart really means not now, you know? And so just move on to the next person. People want to be supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. People want to give. Generosity is one of the most beautiful things you can experience. So since the the founding of the Victory Cup initiative, how much have you all given out? So in the last eight years, we've worked with 72 nonprofit organizations in Central Florida, and we've awarded over $2 million. It's $2,044,000. It's impressive. That's And so I'm curious too, there's how many nonprofits have, have kind of gone through in that in that time span as well? 72. So, 72? So in Central Florida, according to um, some research that we've done recently, there are 1,966 nonprofits okay. in Orange County. Okay. We opened it up to Orange Osceola Seminole, and this year we've invited Brevard County okay. in. If this is going out to your listeners, we would really love to have some environmental group supply and some okay. animal group supply. Um, we have a category open for them. And we, for some reason, we don't get a lot of those groups applying mm-hmm. to be a part of Victory Cup. And each year we get anywhere between 60 to 90 applications. So what's the process if these individuals do want to get involved? Do they just go on the website right. and yeah. file an application? Sure. So our application process is open is open right now, the window from September 6th through the 29th. It will be on our website to know for sure. I think that's what you And said. you fill out your application. It's very straightforward. And then after we receive our applications, it goes through um, a compliance review. We work with uh, some attorneys from Dean Mead and also Zimmerman, Kaiser, and Sutcliffe. And so they... Um, review the accuracy of all the information. And then we turn it over to our 165 community evaluators. It takes anywhere between two to four hours for them to review their applications, submit their scores online, and then we have our winners. I'm curious too how you prioritize, or maybe you don't, between uh, a brand new um, charity or some that's more established. And it seems like, from what I can tell, there's been a mix of, of both every year, it seems like, and who makes the finalists. We are open to all nonprofits of all sizes Mm -hmm. because if we get a really big nonprofit like Orlando Philharmonic or Second Harvest Food Bank, guess what? They have a huge audience and they're going to bring awareness Mm -hmm. to some of our smaller organizations. Some of our smaller organizations, they get to spend four or five months with business leaders from a Second Harvest or another, you know, big nonprofit organization. It's incredible those relationships that are built when you're a mom and pop nonprofit and you get to spend time with one of those big, big organizations in town. The relationship building among the nonprofit leaders 
is so special. And we all know, whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a nonprofit, when you're a leader, it can be really lonely at the top, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we try to create just incredible authentic relationships between the nonprofit leaders so that they'll leave and they'll be able, they'll work together for a long time. One year, not this year, but last year, we had um, the Adult Literacy League had one of their clients who had a job interview, but he was sleeping in his car. So he wasn't able to get a shower for the interview the next day. Yep. Well, she had called the homeless shelter that was also in Victory Cup. And so they were able to get him to the front of the shower line the next day so he could get there in time for his interview. And it's just wow. really cool collaboration that you don't think about that really does make a difference. We've talked a lot about how far you've come in the last you know, eight plus years. Where do you see this going? Before I answer that, I do want to say one thing. Yeah. You know, there's enough, and I said this on Wednesday, there's enough business acumen in this town to solve all of the needs of our community. We need more business leaders to volunteer as board members for nonprofit organizations. And everyone can be a good board member. There are so many needs in the nonprofit community. And so some of the in-kind prizes that the nonprofits win are just as valuable as the money. For example, uh, you'll get a scholarship to Leadership Winter Park. Yeah. You'll get a scholarship to LifeWork Leadership. I mean, those programs are three or $4,000, which isn't a lot for a for-profit organization, but nonprofits can't afford that. Right. I just received an invitation to a leadership workshop for $950. That's not in the Victory Cup budget. Right. There's, I need a leadership workshop. I need, you know, training and mentoring, and I need to always be learning and always be sharpening my sword, but I can't pay for something like that. And so when you're able to award prizes like that to the nonprofits, it's life-changing for the leader and for the organization. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about that. As for the future of the Victory Cup initiative, we've been thinking about this for a long time. And three and a half years ago, we decided that our goal was to give away a million dollars. And so we started with our 42 and we were gonna just double it every mm -hmm. year. Well, because of some incredibly generous, wonderful men and women in this community, we, we got to $800,000 last year. So we feel really great about the amount that we've given away. And so now, I think it's time to take Victory Cup to another community. And I think so because there's a lot of terrible, terrible, painful things going on right now. Mm -hmm. And it does, people can't even have conversations anymore. All and right. it's heartbreaking. And a lot of people are hurting. And Victory Cup is this incredible, kind, Christ-inspired, love your neighbor as yourself, really cool event. And so I think we sort of have a burden to try to give it to other communities and just see what happens. No one's getting rich. You know, it's just about right. loving one another. Right. Where, do, where What communities kind of come <laughs> to mind when you, when I you mean, say we would that? Love, I think we'd love to stay in Florida because Florida yeah. is such an incredible state and it's such a leader in our country. And so Jacksonville is an incredible city. We hear a lot of great things about their community and mm -hmm. their nonprofit community. Tampa is very close. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband's from Tampa. I think Tampa has a really exciting um, flair to it. And then South Florida is is really great. And so we're really literally just putting the word out and looking for partners who say, yeah, we think right. Jacksonville's great. We'll be a sponsor. You know, if we can get, you know, 
a certain amount of partners and dollars, we could easily launch in one of those cities. But we're not going to do it till we're ready. We're not going to do it till we really feel like the calling from the Lord. Right. And we're not going to do it if it's not going to be the best event of the year mm -hmm. for that community. Because we believe that the Victory Cup Initiative is the best hour in Central Florida all year long. So for anyone who's here at home and wants to go to the event, be a community evaluator, be a donor, how they go about that? Well, our website is incredible. And I would, we had some of our partners at Corksicle helped us build our website. Awesome. So I stand by everything you need to know is on the website. And um, so any information, if you want to buy a ticket or a table um, or become a community evaluator, go straight to the website. But we would love to invite people to come to this year's breakfast. It's on February 1st, 7.30 a.m. at the Dr. Phillips Performing Arts Center. Oh, I mean, cool. awesome. how exciting <laughs> is that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're going to be, we're putting our nonprofit leaders on the same stage as the most talented artist in the world. It's going to be great. really yeah. exciting. We're hoping to have 600 people in the audience. Tickets start at $500. And people say, mm, that's a lot of money. It's not. We can all afford it if we live in this community. <laughs> and come, it'll knock your socks off, and it'll change you forever. So that's what we were talking about when you when you arrived today is we we're saying you can't describe it, but you, the best hour of the year, and they're going to be on stage in the Performing Arts Center. How do you try and, and describe what the impact is and what people are going to experience when they show up this February? You're going to hear incredible stories, and you're going to hear about things in our community that are happening that mm. you may or may not know about. Some of it's going to break your heart but most of it's gonna make you feel really proud of this community and the people who live here and how every day we're all striving to be better and to help other people and to give back as much as we can. And it, it will change you forever. You'll find yourself quoting the people on the stage for the next couple of weeks. Well, I know we'll be there. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good enough description and we're excited for it. And thank you for taking the time on a Friday to come talk to us and we're excited to share the mission of Victory Cup Initiative and um, can't thank you enough. Well, you guys are so sharp and I'm just, I really appreciate this thoughtful effort to get to know other business leaders and to really help the community get to know the exactly. business leaders that you're interviewing. And I think it's admirable. I think it's important. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying. It's needed. We need to be taking time to hear from other people. And culturally, people just do it privately mm -hmm. on their AirPods, you know? Right, right. And so <laughs> yeah. this is the perfect medium. Right. So congratulations to you guys. And I wish you all the best of Thank luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it.